when you're going out to raise a seed round, you just have to think, okay, I'm going to have to do a hundred pitches and I'm going to get a hundred no's, but then yeah. on my 101st pitch, I'm going to get a yes. yes. <laughs> you know? And so you have to think about like, all right, I just have to keep going. So when you're at no 30, yeah. you're like, oh, I got 70 more no's left. No big deal. You just yeah. gotta keep going. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline, and I am here with Brett Granberg, CEO of Vanover Labs. Brett, it's so much fun. After years of working together, it is so fun to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Looking forward to the conversation. Would you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Tell us a bit about your background, you know, the the path that you walked to the point where you are today. Yeah, for sure. So my background has been always working kind of at the intersection of the private sector and the national security space. I started out my career at McKinsey, but doing some work with the intelligence community and some of the big defense contractors, and then moved over to Inkytal, where I was working pretty heavily with the Counterterrorism Mission Center at CIA, focused mostly on natural language processing and other types of cool software problems. And then um, started Vanivar in 2019 and have been kind of working on Vanivar since then. And you and your co-founder, Nini, you both have personal and professional reasons for starting Vanivar. Could you share a little bit more about what inspired both of you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'll speak on my end. I think for me, defense and national security always has felt personal. For me, it's kind of about the bargain that we make with people that kind of join the the military. We're asking them to put themselves in harm's way for our benefit. And I think we owe them our best effort in supporting them when they need it. I think part of that comes from family for me. Both of my grandfathers were in the military. One of my grandpa's oldest brothers was in a unit in World War II called 47th Infantry Regiment, which was just a conventional army unit. And, you know, I've thought a lot about his experience. He had a pretty typical experience for that conflict where his unit had like a 250% casualty rate over an eight-month period of time, where, you know, for a given company, say it has 150 soldiers in it. After eight months, you have more than 300 people that have been killed or injured. And and he, unfortunately, he didn't make it home. He was one of the casualties over in, in France. But when I think about defense and national security, I kind of think about if you're going to do what my grandfather's brother did, then then like we better be like specifically me. I feel like I owe it <laughs> to you to try to maximize your odds of not having to fight in the first place or, or maximize your, your odds of coming home. So I think family reasons was a little bit of a motivator for me. And that was kind of solidified in my professional experience working some of the jobs that I've had where I've gotten the privilege of actually being able to work with people more closely, for example, you know, during the counterterrorism fight with folks at CIA and just really getting to know these people. And the more time I spend on a military base, whether it's with enlisted folks that are like an 18 year old private, or if it's with, you know, a senior 
person, like a colonel or a general, just the more time I've spent getting to know people, it just sucks me in <laughs> further and further. Like I'm more convinced and convicted that these people need our support. And part of that comes from that support is not a given in the technology space in particular. It's actually not a given that people are given cutting edge tools to do their jobs. You have to make a really strong and concerted effort in order to make that happen. So that's kind of how I think about it. You talk a little bit more about that. Like, why isn't it a given? You know, we're, yeah. we're asking folks, General Mattis has come on the podcast before, and he talked about the fact that we're asking you to sign a check payable with your life. And yet, as I hear you describe your experience and, and your inspiration for Vanivar Labs, it feels like you have a lot of conviction that we should be doing more for the yeah. folks who are standing up in, in defense of the United States and our ally. Yeah, 100%. I think especially from a tools and capabilities standpoint, the people that have been responsible for building these tools are the big defense primes like Lockheed and Raytheon and, and Boeing. And a lot of those companies are, they don't have the strongest software talent. They might have some great hardware people. They don't have the strongest software engineers. Um, the strongest software engineers and product people in the United States are at you know consumer tech companies or ad companies, those sorts of things. And so there's a pretty big delta in talent that I think is part of the problem. The other problem is incentives. There's an interesting contract structure that's used in the government called cost plus contracting that is applied both to hardware and software. And what that ends up creating incentive-wise for some of these big contractors is actually, in some cases, an incentive to drive up the cost so that they make a certain amount of profit off of a contract. And that can be really, really dangerous from a software standpoint. And that's what I saw, I've seen in my previous roles and, and at Banabar today too, when the government signs up for these contracts, with, which on the surface seem like they make sense because you're fixing a profit margin, you're controlling the profit margin that the contractor is being paid. It actually creates a lot of perverse incentives to not really deliver into prolonged delivery of software. And that's all fine until you're working on something that is life or death and really urgent. And then it is not fine. That was the whole catalyst for Vannevar was seeing one of these contracts go awry on a very important mission back in the Islamic State days and really feeling just a personal, because I knew the people that were on the receiving end of this, just feeling like a sense of like, why is this happening? <laughs> and I tried to change some things in that previous role that I had, but I, I found that it was really difficult to change from within. I came to the conclusion that especially from like a technology standpoint, you kind of have to do it from the outside. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And you and I had sort of analogous experiences. I was thinking about how to innovate within the education sector. You're thinking about how to innovate within the defense and public sector. And both came to the conclusion that we had a much better chance of creating the change we wanted to see if we rotated outside of those traditional sectors. But can you talk a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion? You know, the friction that you felt, the tension, the kind of slogging through that just made it clear to you that it wasn't going enough inside of those conventional structures. Yeah, yeah. I think I tried to change what I could with like the very little power that I <laughs> held at the time. Very little like way I was able to move resourcing, just a tiny amount to try to get something better deployed for this particular mission. But what I found when doing that is a lot of when you're trying to deploy new technology as somebody that is within the government, you run into a lot of risk aversion and actually like rules and talent issues that kind of prevent you from, especially on the software side, building anything. It's not set up to allow you to build anything. And so 
for me, it came back to like urgency. Like I felt a lot of urgency to try to get something working, get something deployed. And people needed it like today. They didn't need it in five years, which is kind of when, if I were to have tried to do that within government, you're looking at like a five to 10 year time horizon for something like this. And so I don't know. I think for me, I was thinking hard about like, how could I do this internally? But just uh, came to the conclusion that the right way to do it, the fastest way to do it would be to go start a company, raise some money, hire some really great engineers, just build the thing and then just, and then just like get the thing deployed. And you can do that in like a six month time horizon, not, not like a five year time horizon. So that was it just for me, it wasn't even it was just mostly feeling that speed was really important. It wasn't even like I was mm-hmm. doing some big, like a big strategic calculus. It's just like, this needs to be happening now. And like, how can this happen now? I, it, just the only path that I saw was, was, start, was starting a company to work on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you all, as a team, you've been after it for about four and a half years. You're picking up steam. What are some of those key lessons that you've learned about how to start a defense company? I mean, the, there are really difficult aspects of starting a defense tech company. I'd love for you to, to talk about what you've learned and how to build desk tech products too. Yeah. Yeah, man, there's a lot of things. I'll talk just about the product side. I think on the product side, the main things that I've learned that I think would be useful for people, because we're actually starting to see, I'm starting to see early stage people starting defense companies or starting companies that have like a dual use component, which is actually really exciting and wasn't the case when we were getting going. I think the main two things that I would tell folks that are trying to do it is, I think we've launched three products now, I guess four products if you count. (laughs) The first one we launched that didn't go well. We've never had a product market fit where we didn't deeply know the mission problem better than everybody else, or at least like felt like we really had deep domain expertise in that problem area. That is kind of the bar you need to have in order to build something that actually hits product market fit. You really need to know the space and the particular problem that you're trying to solve better than all the, the other companies in the space, but also better than the DOD people that are working the problems to the extent that you can. That's a really high bar that's really hard to do. We've never built a product that has worked out well without that level of domain expertise. And so like that kind of cascades a little bit to what your objectives are when you're launching a product. Like How we think about it is when we launch a product or make a bet in a space, our main goal is not iterating to kind of like improve the features or like make the UI better. Our main goal when we launch something is to learn. It's like to learn more about the mission problem. It's not to optimize a particular solution. And the reason for that is if you view it that way and you use it to gain knowledge, once you have more of a complete picture, built like figuring out what to build actually is a lot easier <laughs> than it is in the beginning. So just that framing, like none of this we knew when we started, but that I think is something that we've definitely learned on the product side. The other thing that I'll say that was really important for us is you have to be working on a top three problem for enough people within the government in order to get to product market fit. You need a really, really high level of urgency to get products deployed in DoD. Like people have to be very much irrationally excited about what you're doing in order to even do the paperwork, even if you're trying to give it to them for free, doing the paperwork to allow you to give it to them for free, <laughs> you need to have like a very, very, very high bar for getting people really, really excited about what you're doing. So taking a really urgent problem is like super, super key. And I think I've seen that across other defense companies too that have started to gain traction. It's like when you've picked an urgent problem, when you doubt you're running into some problems. I wanted to pick up a thread on that second point that you made about how your main goal at launch is to learn, not to optimize. 
because it takes time to learn. And so how do you negotiate that with your client when, as you've said, like time is of the essence, we got to make progress now. How do you negotiate for the time so that you can really drill to where you can add the most value? Yeah. Yeah. It's more difficult when you're doing the, when you have no products, you're doing purely zero to one because you don't have the benefit of having like an existing customer base to test things with, but how we did it in the, it's, it's really hard mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're in the zero to one part of the process with, and you're just working on, you know, getting one product to stick, you're basically trying to feel out where you're getting pull from customers, customers, as opposed to when you're pushing product onto a customer. So the way that you know you're getting closer is when people start interrupting your demos and saying like, okay, I want to like get this on my deployment now. You're on the right track until somebody is actually interrupting you or emailing you to buy your thing. You still need to keep iterating. You're not hitting on something quite right. And that's really hard to figure out and, and feel out and understand in the beginning. But while you're kind of in that journey, every time you do one of these customer demos, you're asking yourself, like you're trying to ask them what they do and what their problems are you're trying to figure out where they're getting stuck and where they're excited and where they're not excited and then doubling down on the areas where, where they are excited. And then the last thing I'll say to that is like, you have to get on base. Like you have to go to these mm. military bases. <laughs> it's not possible to build the kind of domain expertise in the beginning without actually going and meeting with these people in person and watching what they do to the extent that you can. That's really, really, really important. It's such a great point. And it's reminding me of an additional question, which is you talked about domain expertise, but you had spent your career up until the point that you started Vanover Labs adjacent to the clients that you're serving now. So you're adjacent to the IC, adjacent to the DOD, Mm -hmm. um, but not inside of it. And I think that sometimes sitting next to a problem, people and potential entrepreneurs feel like, I just don't, I'm not inside of that problem. I don't know it well enough to have something meaningful to say or do. I think of you as somebody who's actually leveraged that as a superpower in constructing Vanivar and in creating solutions for the folks that you serve. Can you talk about that? Like how you became an expert when you weren't inside of it, the way some of your your customers are on a day-to-day basis? How did you, yeah. how did you develop your expertise? Yeah, this was something I learned in my job at Inkytel. So the way that Inkytel is set up is you're mainly focused on CIA, but you actually have tie-ins to a lot of different intelligence organizations. And so when I was working on the counterterrorism mission set, I used that as a way to then go find and meet every mission, you know, all the mission groups I could find across the intelligence community that had a similar type of problem to the one that we were working on. And I found that when you do that and then you go on site to all these different groups, you can start to see patterns of wh- like what's working, what's not working. And you can, you can see different variations in people's workflows and you can build up a lot of domain expertise really quickly. If you're going to all these different places and you're watching the workflows, you actually have to get behind people at their desk. It's not enough to sit in a conference room and like interview them about the problem or interview them about the problem. You have to actually get behind their desk. And so that, skill set was, I think, extremely valuable. And that's kind of how we approach it at Vanivar and how like the product team now approaches it at Vanivar. Whereas if we're working on a new thing 
I, you know, I try to send people out <laughs> to the bases, some of which are like, sometimes we have to go overseas and, and like intercept people on deployments and stuff. And which is honestly the most fun part of the job, but you have to like get out forward with the people that are doing the mission in order to have the knowledge to like make an educated guess at where to start. Mm-hmm. And you talked about one of your insights is making sure that you're working on a top three problem. Yeah. And there were moments in the your trajectory as a company where you realized you were working on a top 10 problem and that wasn't good enough. Did your client come right out and say, Brent, this is a top three problem? No, <laughs> <Did you know? laughs> no definitely like, not. <laughs> how did you navigate through and realize? I mean, was it just like stopping you in the demo and you're realizing this is where the heat is? Or were there other indications to you that, okay, now this is the top three problem. This is the heart of the matter that we have to get after. We've had a different experience with a couple of the products where we kind of feel like we've hit that level of traction. For the first product that we launched, I was not super good at product (laughs) management or product development at this point. And so for that product, we built a lot of stuff. We built a lot of features off of this one core idea that we had, and we were doing a lot of demos. And, you know, nobody would ever call us back (laughs) after we did the demos. And we couldn't figure out, are we, are we selling it incorrectly? Or like, is the product that we couldn't actually figure out if it was a sales problem or a product problem, but we started to, we ne- we never got any traction from that particular product. But before we would go to meetings, sometimes people would ask us before the meeting, Hey, do you guys have anything for Russian or do you have anything for Mandarin? So we started to get these little hints that I initially ignored, which was not mm-hmm. a great idea, but eventually listened to And then once we decided to, we heard that a few times. And then there was like a weekend before a customer meeting where we decided, you know what, like nobody's buying our stuff anyway. We might as well try something new here. So we tried one of those languages. And that was the first time that when we did a demo, people were like, oh, wait, this is really interesting. And we we kind of followed that thread a little bit. So nobody was coming out and saying, hey, this is a top three problem for us, but they were giving us hints. Um, Yeah. And then we ended up like from there... We didn't quite have product market fit. We followed that thread a little bit and discovered a couple other parts of that problem that we then were able to build into the product. And then then we had something that's different than the the other product. I don't know if this is helpful, but that's different from the other product where the other bet that we made, the second bet that we made was more about, okay, we've been in all these bases and now we're like really embedded in their workflow with this initial product. And we're seeing this other mission problem that is really important and is not going well. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of what allowed us to make that second bet. I'm realizing, Brett, that we haven't actually described anything about Vanniverse products to our listeners. What can you share? You know, what's, yeah. what's sort of publicly available? I'll talk about the thesis for the first product. The thesis for the first product actually came out of me and my personal experiences working on counterterrorism, which was basically that government was having a really tough time analyzing foreign language data. In the counterterrorism fight, it was Arabic. Now it is more, you know, like languages coming out of Europe and Asia. And that was like the bet that we made was, okay, There we now have really compelling tools from a computer vision standpoint and a natural language processing standpoint, where actually we can process a lot of heter- heterogeneous um, text imagery and video data that's maybe in a foreign language and turn that into something mission relevant. So that was the underlying thesis for the first products. And we started with counterterrorism and then we pivoted to sort of great power competition. So think stuff going on in, in, in Europe and in Asia. And that is when we hit product market fit. So Decrypt, our first product is really around providing the data and tooling necessary to work on some pretty hairy national security problems, but, but specifically targeting great power competition. 
And that second product that we launched, I can't talk a lot about, but it's in a similar vein in that sort of great power competition space where it's really, you know, top three problem, really urgent. There's not a lot of people working on it. And we see like a viable software path to building something that would work for that particular problem set. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brett, for that context. So you've sort of brought us up to speed on the kind of earliest years of Vannevar. I told us a bit about the product. Scott Phillips joined you and Nini as CTO, and you described his introduction to the company, which was in 2021, as an inflection point for VLabs. What have you learned about finding and working with leaders and co-founders? This is so hard to get right. And you and Nini got it right from the very beginning of the company and then adding in Scott, and it seemed to only have kind of made the trajectory of the business even more exciting. Yeah, so Scott was definitely amazing <laughs> person to add to the team. He brought a lot, like he brought so much to the team that it, like if you if you told me what he was going to do in like a CTO job description, I honestly wouldn't believe it. Like this is not possible for one human to do all these things. And I think what makes Scott good and what makes kind of Nini and, and I've seen other leaders good is like it's a little bit unique to people. For Scott, I think his superpower, one of his superpowers is that he improves the performance of everybody on the team, literally just by virtue of being on the team. It's actually very, I haven't I actually have not seen this from very many people before and including my performance. He makes me better at my job just by being on the team, both because I'm learning like act, you know, tactical skills from him, but also because when you're on a really small team and you and you know you've got like Michael Jordan on the team, <laughs> you, you want to push yourself to to be better, and that's how I feel with Nini as well. It's kind of Nini is sort of like the Michael Jordan of her function. Scott is kind of the master at his function, and so like it really pushes me to try to be worthy of working with them. Honestly, that's kind of how I think about it. Like I have to do a really good job. I don't want to let them down because of how good they are. So that if you can create that dynamic on like a leadership team, you're in a that's a really good spot to be in. You're in a you're in a virtuous cycle of kind of people wanting to do better just by virtue of the team setup. In terms of like selecting, I guess, and sort of managing managers, especially, I think what there's some things that I didn't know when I started that maybe I'll share. There's a lot. There's probably like somebody could write a book about all this stuff. But the most important thing that I now look for in interviews for leadership roles is low ego. You really need, for leadership positions especially, you need those people to be low ego. Ego is not an asset in a startup. Like it absolutely is not. I did not know this, but if you think about it, it makes sense because when you're a functional leader in a startup, your job basically is every six to 12 months, you have to, your everything is changing. Like your function's changing, you have different problems and you have to be really adaptable and you have to be actually really comfortable failing and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes, actually admitting when you're wrong and, and like learning from it and asking for help and communicating with people about what's going on. That's what makes people good as functional leaders. And that, that's not something that was obvious to me when we started. The other key thing about leadership teams is if you hire the wrong person, you need to move them out as soon as possible. This is especially true for leadership roles. When we've had to move people out before, it almost always uncovers things like it's not better when you dig into the function you will uncover things you're like wow okay this is really not good it's always like a little bit worse than you think it is and so if you have an inkling to make a change you have to make that change early it's hard to do that in the beginning when you're really early stage you're maybe less confident in yourself you don't want to let people go it's like not a fun 
experience for anybody. And you can like tell yourself stories of to put it off, but you really need to prioritize kind of making that change and getting the right person in the role. Definitely something I've learned over time. The last thing in terms of leadership roles, and this is not particularly actionable, but you have to be rigorous in your selection process. So you need to be, you know, talking to people that have hired for that function before, how did, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And you're going to hear a million different answers and you'll have to make some educated guess about how to approach interviewing and recruiting for that role. But there is some luck and like, there's actually a lot of luck. And the way I think about it is kind of, you want to position yourself to be lucky. That's kind of a little bit how I think about leadership recruiting. And it's like, Scott, I think is a good example of this where, you know, I was highly confident that he would be great at engineering management, but he brought the most valuable stuff that he brought was actually not what I identified in the interview process. It was like the million other things, million other skills that he brought to the role. So set yourself up to be lucky, I guess is what I'd say there. That last point is so true. It reminds me, I know General Mattis is paraphrasing somebody else and I can't remember who it is, but he said, when history taps you on the shoulder, you want to be ready. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you like, put yourself in a position to be lucky. You got to do the work and yeah. so that you can, you know, maximize those opportunities. And I want to go back. I'm really struck by your comment. Ego is not an asset in a startup. It's so yeah. true. And you talked much more about grittiness and resilience and the ability to fail and learn and try again. And I think that we should tell more of that story. You know, we, we in America love to tell the hero story or the glamour story around startup life. And in fact, it's so much about blood, sweat, and tears. And it's so hard. It's so much harder than you could possibly envision it being when you, you know, when, when you um, set up your first email account you know, talking a little bit more about that stuff, you know, the ability to stick with it. I'm thinking of even a story that you told me about heading out to fundraise for the first time. And it was just, you know, so difficult and such a slog and you just had to persevere, you know? And so talk to us a little bit about that, you know, that willingness to kind of lean in to the pain and stick with it until you see your vision through. Yeah, for sure. The first 18 months or so are really hard. And it's way harder as you're, as you're saying than you think it's going to be. It kind of depends how you get going. But for us, the first experience that we had was, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to go raise a seed round. If you're not familiar with how fundraising works, you kind of just see the success stories of like, you know, crunch base, like somebody raised a bunch or tech crunch, somebody raised a bunch of money, whatever. That's not how it goes <laughs> the majority of the time. So for us, it took us about, I don't know, six months from when we started pitching people to when we actually got the round closed. And I was at Stanford Business School at the time. And so I was like supposed to be going to classes, but it was, <laughs> but I could, I was not because I was, you know, I was just going to Sand Hill Road or going up to San Francisco to just all the time. And what that experience like was for us is we did 50 or so pitches and like 49 of those were no's, you know what I mean? And <laughs> And when you're in the process and you're like at no number 30 or 31, something like that, like it starts to definitely be stressful and affect you. And I remember I actually got like an email from Stanford at the time that was like, hey, you know, we're going to, you're failing your classes or because you haven't shown up, you haven't attended, we're going to kick you out. I was like, great. Okay. I really hope we get this term sheet in. 
Yeah, I think it's really difficult. It gets better. That's the one thing I'll say is like once you hit product market fit, you get the initial team going, it gets better. But the first 18 to 24 months are really hard. And they're pretty much really hard for everybody with very few exceptions Mm -hmm. that I've talked to. Yeah. And I think you just have to be really mindful about managing how you're feeling, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. your physical health, your mental health. Like I remember during this seed round, if we would get a series of rejections, some of which would feel I'm doing a bad job or feel some of them which would feel personal, like, oh, you don't believe in us or like literally me was a lot of the (laughs) feedback I felt like I was getting. You know, sometimes I would wake up at like five in the morning, you know, the next day, like heart racing, like, all right, what am I, what do I got to do? I got to like do another revision on the deck and whatever. You just get really spun up about some of these things. And you kind of have to, to be honest, when you actually are in the survival days, you do actually have to be doing unreasonable things to get it off the ground because gravity is not on your side with getting it off the ground. But Mm -hmm. it's really important to sort of manage your like physical and mental health in terms of taking week or two long vacations when you can. And like just knowing when you need to not work for a day or whatever it is, people have different ways of doing this, but I I think that's really key. And that's something that I'm trying to build in culturally at Banavar, especially for, you know, people that travel a lot, that sort of thing. This story resonates so much. I've just talked to so many entrepreneurs, many of them who are quite famous saying stuff like before we had product market fit, I parked in like the cheapest parking lot available and walked two and a half miles to pit because I didn't have enough money for premium parking. I lived at home with my parents. You know, I had to say no to this or that party because I couldn't afford, you know, the subway fare or whatever. Literally some incredibly successful entrepreneurs who were homeless before they finally figured it out. And so I think you put your finger on the pulse of something crucially important, which is just your ability to withstand the hard (laughs) stuff is so fundamentally important as an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. And that's the advice that I give to people that are in raising a seed round is like the, and it was advice that was given to me by somebody is like, just when you're going out to raise a seed round, you just have to think okay, I'm going to have to do a hundred pitches and I'm going to get a hundred no's, but then yeah. on my hundred and first pitch, I'm going to get a yes. yes. <laughs> you know? And so you have to think about like, all right, I just have to keep going. So when you're at no 30, yeah. you're like, oh, I got 70 more no's left. No big deal. You just yeah. kind of keep going. And you can kind of take that. I mean, everything, honestly, everything is that hard in the beginning, like recruiting your yeah. first people, building the first thing, selling your first things. So it's kind of just taking that mindset of like, all right, I just got to do my got to get my hundred no's and then we're going to be good. It's a tough thing to cultivate. One of the things that you said also, when you were describing Scott and Nini and how both of them are inspiring you to be a better version of yourself. And you said, I don't want to let them down. And it struck me as such a selfless perspective on company building, right? Like selfless, I won't let them down. That to me is very selfless versus the selfish view of, I don't want this person to let me down. (laughs) And I do think that there is a lot of being other oriented that could be part of your success. You know, thinking so carefully about your customer and what they need, thinking so carefully about your co-founder and the leadership team and your colleagues at Vandiver and what they need. Just that idea of really being other oriented as you're building this business. Yeah, for sure. I think I don't know how people do it the other way. <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest, like I don't know how mm-hmm. you would do this the other way or why you would be doing it the other way. But I remember the first time 
somebody exercised like an option for Vanivar. Like they were paying their own money to like get shares for Vanivar. And I had to go in there and it was not that much money because we our shares were worth like whatever pennies at that point. But I remember approving it and being like, oh my God, like I cannot, like I'm not going to lose this person's money who's like now he's, they, they bet their career on us, but now they're like literally putting their money on the line. Like we will make this work. So I think, yeah, I don't know. That goes back to when you're looking for like Scott has that quality, Nini has this quality. When you're looking mm. for great leaders, I think you want to find people that are like low. Honestly, I think it's like ego is like very yeah. much correlated to that. You find people that mm-hmm. are low ego and you'll you will find people that tend to think that way, I think. It's also frequently described as servant leadership. So Brett, and part of this also I think is intertwined with my next question, which is The fact that you've commented that having a strong mission is really magnetic for the Vanivar team. Can you talk more about the advantages of being a purpose-driven entity? Yeah. So I think it really helps you with recruiting, especially right now. I don't know if it actually helped us that much in 2019 when defense was a little bit less popular, but especially with the Ukraine war now and like people seeing what happens when national security goes awry i think people really want to be spending their time doing something that matters because we spend so much time at work especially like the silicon valley ethos of like it's not like a nine to five it's like you're working like i don't know 60 hours a week or if you're at a startup not necessarily at a big tech company but if you're investing that much time in something i think it's really important to then feel good and fulfilled about how you're spending that time. Otherwise, it's, you know, what's the point? So I think having a mission that where people feel like their time is not wasted and, and is meaningful and they feel fulfilled by their work makes it much easier to close candidates. Like, especially when we're kind of being compared against like an app, <laughs> like just like a generic app. It, it, like we have a very, if we have somebody that's kind of interested in that mission, our, it's very easy to kind of pull them onto the team. It also really helps with retention, I guess, which is the part of the same other side of the same coin. But if people feel good about how they're spending time, you know, they're more likely to stay. And so I think I don't ever want to have people at Vanivar feeling like they're wasting their time on something that doesn't matter. That's <laughs> I think if you work here, my bargain for you is like you will your time will be well spent. We will be doing useful and interesting things. I think that's an, an important part of the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another example of you as a servant leader. And, you know, I was struck at one point, I was looking at average tenure across the tech sector, and it was 18 months. And I was thinking, wow, that is just, that is a fast clip, you know, to be moving from company to company every one and a half years. And it's so expensive, and it's so hard to find the right people. And there's such an enormous difference between a B plus contributor and an A plus contributor <laughs> that yeah. if you can hang on to your A plus contributor for as long as possible, it can just really add a tremendous amount of value to the business. And so, you know, thinking about having that core mission, one of our veterans um, in the Breakline community had called this purpose with a capital P. And it really can be the thing that helps you push past tough moments, like what you described with your series seed fundraising and just stick with it. That stick with itness that's just so crucially important in startups and in most companies. So I was kind of reflecting more on the stories that you were talking about when raising your series seed, and you've now raised a couple of rounds of capital. And 
and have had a lot more success, you know, <laughs> yeah. built a business and gone through it a couple of times. And there's so much to learn here. One of my mentors always says that money comes with faces attached. And he means that you are engaging in a long-standing relationship when someone invests in your business. They don't yep. put the money in typically and walk away and you never hear from them again. And so probe deeply for alignment on the things that matter most to you has been really great advice that I've been given, especially when you're down on your luck and it's trending down because in most companies, there are phases like that where you're trying to figure it out, but you're not quite there yet. And you need investors who are going to stick with it and help you through that versus piling on and making it tougher. What have you learned, you know, as you've gone through the process of fundraising several times now, you know, what insights would you like to pass along to other would-be entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think what you were talking about is really important when you were describing you need somebody that's going to be with you through the high times and the low times. I was thinking about one of our investors, Greg Sands from Costa mm. Noa Ventures, mm-hmm. who absolutely embodies that. He was uh, an investor in our seed round and he led our Series A and he's been an investor in our Series B. And he's the only investor board member that we have. And he has been phenomenal. Like he was very mm-hmm. patient with us. It took us, you know, 18 to 24 months to even like close any deals, but he was always consistent and supportive. When I've had to make tough team, ch- team changes, same thing, always consistent and supportive. And before we kind of signed the term sheet for the seed round, when I was doing diligence on him, I talked to a couple people that he actually had to let go, like CEOs that he fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and those CEOs were still like, I would 100% work with Greg again. Like, And that is really unusual for people yeah. that you've had to let go. So mm-hmm. that definitely rings true. And I've had different experiences in the other direction as well. But I think I think it's really important. I think when you're fundraising, you sometimes actually don't get to pick. Like you actually sometimes sometimes you get one term sheet and like you have to kind of take the term sheet and that's what you're working with that person. So it is very much a luxury to be able to pick who you work with. You can kind of stack the deck a little bit in your favor if you do sort of the right pre-work ahead of time. But I think the main thing I would say for fundraising, you know, for our story, we had like one person wrote the term sheet for the seed round. One person wrote the term sheet for the series A, right? So that meant we got rejected like 99%, 97% of the time, something like that for both rounds. When we raised the series A, still nobody thought what we were doing was a good idea. It was Greg who led it. So he already, he was betting on us. He was betting on like me and Nini, I think at that point. But, you know, everybody else was like, this is a terrible idea. It wasn't until the Series B where we actually had like a lot of revenue traction. We could just go point like, hey, this is our revenue. We're profitable. We're growing at like this rate year over year. It was the metrics that told the story. It's not like I did, you know, it's not like I'm like good at fundraising. (laughs) It's just the the metrics at that point kind of told the story for us. But I think it's just you have to have a lot of conviction in what you're doing in order to surmount the nose over years. Like you will go years with most people thinking, a lot of people still think what we're doing is not super compelling, but you will go years before anybody thinks what you're doing is a good idea. And that's actually exactly where you want to be. You don't want to be in a market where a lot of people are chasing the same idea, or that's actually usually a sign that you're onto something wrong. Like I said, I see that. I've seen that with companies that have raised in spaces and have reached billion dollar valuations and then gone to zero in the same time horizon that we've been kind of like doing our thing. So I think it's just, you have to, if you're going through it, you just got to keep going. That's the main thing. 
Yeah, what you just said reminds me of a quote from Jeff Bezos. At one point, he said, you've got to be comfortable being misunderstood for a long yeah. time. <laughs> very positive way of saying it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. think you and I have talked about Stanford, where we both spent time. And I go back to Stanford quarterly to, to help teach the breakline case. And I'm one of the things that I always say to the students is you've got to know what motivates you, you know, and where you derive your self-confidence, where you feel grounded. And if it is a big brand, you know, and being attached to a big brand, there's nothing to be ashamed of, but do that, you know, because (laughs) it's going to be like a long period, usually as an entrepreneur where you are working on it because you have conviction and passion for it and nobody else gets it, you know, did you get those, Gosh, Brett seems to have, you know, fallen off the, like fallen off the way. <laughs> Whatever, yeah. like people sort of feeling sad for you, you know, in the yeah. first year or two, like, oh, yeah. darn, before yeah. they figured out what you were on to. Totally. Yeah, definitely. People told me, I remember I had one person told me that I knew actually really well. This, this, is, this is actually kind of hurt my feelings, but they told me like, you could be doing something so much more. Like, why don't you go work for like, and they named some big growth yeah. stage tech company. And I was like, man, okay, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're I don't know. But uh, yeah, you, I actually saw it's a really positive message that you're giving the GSB folks, because that's exactly what I tell people is if you don't care yeah. about what you're doing, don't do it. And now we, you know, yeah, like we graduated, I was in class of 2020 and, and a lot of people started companies in that class, but the ones that are still doing it are the ones that actually had conviction. There were a lot of yes. people that did it because of validation, I think. Like, good for you, you you fundraised. Right. And all. That's not going to get you to the to the finish line. That'll get you yeah. like, you know, a little bit of the way, but it's not going to get you to the finish line. Yeah. You know, I think one of our seed investors, his name is Jim Ellis. And he always says he finds it hilarious when people celebrate a fundraising round because he's like, you're celebrating an IOU. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm level, like, that's the wrong metric, you know, versus yeah. celebrating your, your revenue, your customers, the problems that you're solving. So, totally. well, Brett, we're coming up on time here. And I wanted to ask one last question, which is, you know, you've been at it for four and a half years. Y'all are picking up traction. You're picking up steam. And there's so much to be proud of. And I think if I didn't ask this directly, I'm not sure that you would give me the answer. So I want to ask directly, like, as you look back over the last four and a half years, the highs, the lows, is there a moment that calls out to you as like, wow, I was really proud. I was really proud of our team. I was really proud of showing up. And if so, tell us a little bit about what that was. Yeah, I think we had, I guess it was a couple months ago. I spent a lot of time going to bases and talking to customers. And there were two trips I went on with senior folks, one at the Pentagon, one at a different military base that have very, like very important jobs and cover very important missions. In both of these, these were separate meetings, but in both of these meetings, we, we were showing what we were doing on the product side and some of the missions that we were supporting and some of the wins that we had achieved with their subordinate units. And in both of those meetings, the end of the meeting was kind of them basically telling us like, thank you for the work you're doing. It was actually a little bit scary because one of the people was saying like, we are now absolutely relying upon you for this one really, really important mission. So thank you so much for investing in it, which to me, it's like, oh my God, we like, we really need to like step up or we need to maintain our product game and like push it as hard as we can because, you know, people are really depending on us. So I think it's moments like that 
that are really rewarding for me to see, okay, like, hey, over this four and a half year time horizon, we actually now have built something that like built things that are now integrated in these missions in a way where it's, it really is like national security level stuff. And the other thing I'll say is just the team that we built is like that ultimately, I think is probably what I'm most proud of and just seeing how much people have grown in such a short amount of time. Like you're talking about having Aaron Vickers on this podcast, <laughs> like she is she and many others have grown so much and are just have done so many amazing, incredible things. And it's just, it's like a privilege to work with some of these people. Those are my two things. Well, I love those, those examples. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for being here. And thank you and the whole team at Vanivar for being such wonderful partners to break on. I think we've been working together for four years, maybe (laughs) almost as long as both of our organizations have been around. And it's been so wonderful to see people like Aaron Biggers, you mentioned Aubrey Mains and so many other breakliners building their careers at Vanivar, having so much conviction around the problems that you all are going after and the impact that you're having together as a team. So so appreciate you, Brett, for joining us today. Appreciate you and the entire team for supporting our mission as well. Yes. Thank you, Bethany. And thank you for helping us hire like 14 people now <laughs> from the Breakline <laughs> program. It's been amazing. guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.